The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Happy Monday, everybody. Um, Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. Um... We're going to spend the next hour talking about families and um, and trauma, and we're going to talk about um, how families of people who experience mental illness and substance use disorders, um, the trauma that's associated with any type of illness, especially chronic illnesses, families who are exposed um, to multiple experiences with the, the chronic illness of mental health or substance use disorders or cancer or diabetes or asthma or um, people that have um, vascular disease, it, it takes a toll on the family. It takes a toll on the family members. And I think as treatment providers of, of um, individuals who have mental illness and substance use disorders, we sometimes don't always put the family in in the family experience, I don't think in the perspective that's probably the most helpful for the family. Um, when I first started in this profession a long time ago, one of the first things I was told was that addiction was a family disease and it needed to be treated as a family disease. However, there are very few funding streams that allow that to happen. So um, luckily, we, we have as our guest today... Um, a person who has spent a lot of time looking at this and um, has done some research and is actively involved in a treatment program at the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation at the University of Colorado Hospital. And I'd like to introduce our guest, Dr. Michael Barnes, who has more than 30 years' experience as a clinician, program administrator, clinical supervisor, and counselor educator. He has significant expertise in the areas of addiction treatment, trauma therapy, marriage and family therapy, with a specific interest in the development of trauma-integrated addiction treatment. He formerly served the University of Colorado as assistant clinical professor, professor, oh my goodness, professor and training coordinator in the master's program in counseling. Dr. Barnes received his uh, BA in psychology from Indiana University of Pennsylvania, his MED in rehabilitation counseling from the University of Pittsburgh, and his PhD in marriage and family therapy from Florida State University. He is a licensed professional counselor and approved clinical supervisor for individuals seeking licensure as professional counselors and marriage and family therapists in Colorado. So welcome to One Hour at a Time, Dr. Barnes. Hi, Mary. Thank you. Um, so the whole notion of um, trauma within the family as a result of an illness is not something we frequently hear about. Um, can you talk a little bit about how? what is that? I mean, how do families experience trauma? Sure. 
You know, uh, since the very first DSM, um, the the same criteria has been true for uh, who can be traumatized by an event. And so often as mental health professionals or addiction professionals, when we think of trauma, we tend to think of the primary survivor of the traumatic event. But the DSM has always said that there are three uh, individuals who could be traumatized. One is the person who experienced a life-threatening event or an event that had uh, very serious illness, but also an individual who witnesses an event or an individual who learns about an event for someone that they love, either a family member or close friend or associate. So that when we talk about uh, trauma, we often tend to forget that for every traumatic event, there are a number of survivors. Um, It's not unusual for um, particularly a trauma of a child to have the child be the survivor, one parent be the individual who actually observed the the horrific event, and another uh, parent who actually learned about it either through the police or a telephone call, and that uh, from my research and uh, what we've been seeing for a long time is that all of those individuals will be traumatized uh, to some degree or another, and that while the symptoms are pretty much the same, the source of those symptoms may be dramatically different for each. So from a family perspective, um, we generally tend to treat the primary survivor and ask the other family members to be a support system. And we do know that social support is probably, is from the research perspective, the most healing or mitigating of all the, the treatments that a family could get. But um, we often forget to treat those folks who love that primary trauma survivor and who um, are impacted just as much. Well, and I think um, it's been our experience that, that families have um, have episodes of treatment. So, um, and oftentimes they go from multiple treatment providers. And when when you have a a, a family member who you find overdosed in the bathroom, or has been arrested, or has flunked out of school, or um, is being treated for um, an infection as a result of a of a infected um, needle site. You know, there's there's so many things that our families experience, and and I think sometimes we tend to um, look at families and say, well, they're 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 too enmeshed or they're enabling. When I think the reality of it is, is they're just trying to keep their family member alive mm-hmm. with what with what tools they have. And and I think sometimes we um, we we mislabel them. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, trauma therapy has really moved to a much more somatic form of therapy. If you think of Peter Levine's work or um, the work of um, uh, Eric Waltersdorf out here in Denver um, to where the, the body actually remembers that trauma. And if you ask uh, a family member, I do a, a lecture every other Tuesday for our families, and we talk about enabling And I'll say to them, what's it like when your loved one walks in the door and they have that look on their face when you know they're going to ask you for money or you know they're going to ask you to do something that would be considered enabling and they talk about how their chest tightens and they get highly anxious and that they begin to dissociate. And we, we tend to think of enabling and boundary violations as just sort of learned behaviors. And I really come at the more I look at somatic therapy to see it as really a physiological response on the part of the families. Um, I teach them that PTSD is actually a biological disorder with uh, psychological, social, and spiritual implications. And that, um, you know, there's pre, for most cases, there's a pretty 
basic physiological response um, that is learned over the course of time, but that really ties uh, enabling and and um, enmeshment um, uh, together. That's what holds that pattern. Even when people know they've been through a family week and they know I need to stop that behavior, that um, it's really hard to do. It's because well, it's biologically programmed. Well, I think it's hard to do in a vacuum too, because if if the family's at home and the family members have treatment, the family member may or may not be involved in some type of community support, but the families don't always have that same type of support. So whatever they've learned, there's no way to reinforce it. That's that's very correct. Particularly, I find that in addiction programs where you know a lot of family programming is. Um, education about the illness, which is really great, um, and some experiential work, but really not uh, as much um, of a challenge to those family members to begin to look at um, what is their own trauma history and, um, you know, what what are their therapeutic needs. Uh, At the end of our family week, uh, when we look at our statistics, uh, it usually averages about 55 to 56% of our participants will ask for a referral for therapy because we really sort of challenge them to look at their own trauma histories and uh, that this, the response that they have to the, to the illness. Well, and I think, um, you know, I, I firmly believe that nobody comes to work in this profession by accident. And, and I really you know for myself, um, when I went to nursing school, in my mind I was going to do something much different than what I'm doing now. And when I first started to work in the profession as a nurse, one of the things I learned is that nurses have a very high rate of alcoholic fathers. And um, my dad was an alcoholic, and he stopped drinking before I was born. But as, but as a result of his alcoholism, he had a lot of vascular problems. He had diabetes. He was in the hospital multiple times. And I can remember toward the end of his life being at the hospital, and somebody came to, to visit. And I remember saying to them, you know, I've lost my father so many times and that, that whole fear of going through the illness and not knowing whether we're going to make it or we're going to not make it. There's just kind of a learned helpless, not maybe not helplessness, but there's this learned feeling of, well, here we go again. I don't want to get too close because I've already grieved the loss a couple times, you know? And, and mm-hmm. I think families with people that have... Um, family members with serious mental illness or addictive disorders go through a very similar thing. Well, you know, we've been down this road before, um, you know, and here we are back to where we started from with them using or them having symptoms and needing to be hospitalized. And and there's just a lot of wear and tear that goes into that. And that's really absolutely true. My dissertation research was on the secondary trauma of parents of children who experience a life-threatening injury requiring pediatric intensive care. And so often they talk about that same thing, that it's such a touch-and-go scenario. Um, um, And they're asked so often to make decisions about medical care and um, surgical stuff, you know, procedures and medication. Like, do they get... uh, And I I know in my research, families would talk about I'm being asked to help or to make decisions about procedures that I don't know anything about and the, the real terror associated with that. Uh, and there's lots and lots of research coming out now about cardiac disease and the uh, um, individual who has had either a stroke or a heart attack has a very high likelihood of having PTSD and 
one of my doctoral students at a previous university did his study on the wives of men that had um, heart attacks and found that the wives actually had a higher rate of PTSD than the actual survivor of the cardiac event. And when you talk to them, they talked about how powerless they were to make this person um, eat right, go to the you know go to the doctor, take their medication, um, and we hear the same thing with our families and the addiction world is how powerless they feel to get this person to do what they um, are supposed to do. And I've done research with families with um, chronic mental illness and um, addiction, and they say the same things. So that powerlessness begins to, or, or helplessness begins to um, guide uh, future behavior associated with the illness. So what is... What are some signs? What are some signs within a family that the family's experiencing this secondary trauma related to um, substance abuse or addiction or mental illness? Well, one of the things we find is that family members often experience their own post-traumatic stress response or a post-traumatic stress disorder, and um, you know they have the in many cases the exact same symptoms: their own fear and anxiety, intrusive thoughts. Um, I'll ask um, family members, how many of you have ever been sitting at your computer and working and doing what you're supposed to be doing and then suddenly have an intrusive panic uh, associated with your loved one and are they doing what they're supposed to do and all of these hands um, go up. Um, family members often, will often uh, report nightmares um, and the list goes on. And we'll be right back to talk about some more signs after this commercial break. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with host Nancy Kerala. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. Together with her guests, we'll explore C. diff infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. 
Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Dr. Michael Barnes, who is the Clinical Program Manager for the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation at the University of Colorado, also known as CDAR, and it's located right outside of Denver in a lovely campus. Um, we're talking about family trauma, and before we went to commercial, Dr. Barnes starts to um, identify the signs within a family. Could you just summarize those again for us? Well, I, basically, I said that uh, the secondary trauma of families generally result in uh, the exact same symptoms as someone who was the primary survivor. They may not be as severe, but they generally tend to be pretty similar. Uh, and the ones that I think uh, are most obvious are the issue of a need to be in control of everything around them and the need uh, to be very hypervigilant. And I'll often ask families, how long does it take for you to recognize that your loved one's under the influence when they walk in the door, and the typical answer is two seconds. And I ask them why, and they say, because it's really critical for me to know that. And so um, I think those are the two primary uh, things that we would see. Families become really vulnerable, and they start focusing much more on safety and control so that they can be okay and hold the family together. Well, I think the other thing that happens, at least from our experience, is the family becomes so focused on the person's symptoms of their illness, whether it's their um, addiction or their mental illness, that they forget taking, they don't, they stop taking care of themselves. They don't, they don't exercise anymore. They um, drop out of um, social things that they might have done, and they just become laser focused on this thing that they're trying so hard to control that they can't. I think that's really true. Yeah, we see the same thing pretty consistently. It seems like everybody gets lost in this illness. I mean... Um... Yeah, I, I think it's, it's actually much easier to focus on their loved one's struggle than their own. And um, if they can... You know, so often it's like a parent will need a kid to behave in a certain way so that their trauma doesn't get triggered. So that idea of if, I, if we could just make it that my loved one is okay... I don't really have, then I won't be triggered and therefore I'll be okay. And so there's a, a real vested interest in us, you know, fixing that patient, making them okay. Well, and I think um, one of the things that's important for everybody to understand is that for the most part, I believe we're kind of a nation of trauma survivors. I mean, we were founded by people who were fleeing religious persecution and most people who immigrate here immigrate away from some type of, whether it's war or pestilence or just immense poverty. And so then you compound that on just, um, I I come from an Irish Catholic background. People in my family either drank to excess or they didn't drink at all. And, And there's family stories going back generations of people's drinking and their behavior. So, um, I think we all carry trauma to some degree. I think it's that's really correct, and I also come from an Irish Catholic background, and uh, there was a fair amount of drinking and uh, alcoholism in the family in previous generations. And you know what it really reminds me of is the the new research, and it's not really new, but it's sort of new in the trauma world of epigenetics and that intergenerational transmission of uh, of trauma, and the uh, the idea that the environment actually does impact you know, the activation or deactivation of certain uh, genes and the development of certain proteins, and that actually um, for children growing in really highly uh, stressful environments, 
to actually be programmed biologically to not manage their emotions very well um, uh, due, due to these sort of genetic uh, changes. And the, there are three uh, kind of populations that are being studied more than any others, the first being Holocaust survivors and looking at multiple generations past the Holocaust, still have uh, genetic and um, biological uh, abnormalities in terms of stress hormones and things like that, uh, Native Americans and uh, African-American families in which slavery was involved. Now, there's a lot of research coming out in those three areas that are speaking exactly to what, what you just spoke to. So how do we help families understand what's going on within the family and and be able to make the connection to you bring your own trauma experience into this family. I know, um, you know, oftentimes, you know, uh, we look at people's behavior and, and we categorize it as, you know, personality disorder or symptoms of something when in the reality of it is they're really dealing with the pressures or how they've learned to cope with their own family of origin trauma. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think... Um, you know, what we've decided to do is to really change our family education program to be, uh, a, and it's a five-day program that families come in, that where it used to be much more educating about the illness, that's just one day. The, the rest of the week is really very much about teaching them about trauma and giving them exercises and challenging them to look at their own history uh, to begin to really look at what, what is their immediate reaction to the intoxication or to the to the uh, symptoms associated with addiction, and really, in a in a supportive and caring way, um, and I think that trauma therapy people who work with trauma all the time are really aware that our patients are assessing us far more than we're assessing them, and the idea of safety is so incredibly important, and the issue of pace. And so really being able to not push people too quickly, but to pace that to where there's some education and then some, some time to really kind of reflect and to um, you know, begin to speak of their experience, we're finding that it's really having a pretty positive impact on those families. Um, I think the other thing is to begin to recognize that the response of families is actually a failed attempt or a failed solution to to sort of fix what's going on. If the family could have fixed it by themselves, they would have. So we try to maintain a really clear um, understanding that this is a family that may in some cases look resistant because it's really hard for them to wrap their head around what we're talking about. But in in reality, they they continue to try harder and harder. They just keep trying the same things over and over. So, So I think being able to speak honestly and, and to pace that discussion in a way that they can tolerate it is really important. I think teaching families um, um, kind of somatic exercises and coping skills. We use a lot of dialectical behavior therapy. Um, helping families to understand the fact that um, everyone in the family may have a very different reality about what happened. Um, that's one of the things that I, uh, and I work with a lot of highly traumatized families, that it's very unusual for everyone to come into the room and say, tell me the same story. It's far more likely that everyone has a very different story. So often families work very hard to get the patient the help that they need, that they they tend to really miss the fact that uh, a lot of what they believe about this is misperception. So um, 
really helping them to get a different reality orientation. Um, you know, Charles Figley, who was my mentor, um, talks about resilient families. And so we have a lot of work that we do with teaching them how to be resi- resilient. We, we look at individ- individual resilience with them, the idea that optimism and hope is at the center of that, and then really begin to look at family system changes that can be created to actually create resilience. Uh, being much more solution-oriented, um, a, a whole family as the survivor mentality to where the, the problem cannot be solved by just fixing the addiction of the one person. Um, okay. We know from, uh, we just know that if, if the patient gets better and the family doesn't, the patient will go back to drinking in a very large percentage of those cases. Well, I and mean, that's true, and I think for us, um, the family is such a huge uh, component of somebody's being successful in their recovery that, um, I mean, we invest a lot of um, time and energy and effort in communicating with families and doing family education and support, which is skill-based to help families learn to do problem-solving, how to have effective communication skills, how to um, how do learn how to cope with dis- distress and stress and to give people mm-hmm. new skills. And I think that you know, um, I know for, for the folks that we treat, the myth is, is that, well, the family falls away, when the reality of it is, is that when, when you have a, when parents have a, a, an adult child that isn't doing well, they're in their thoughts almost daily, even if they're not physically in, in their environment, and that, that those adult children often have more contact with their parents than the, their other siblings who may not be. Mm-hmm facing the same struggle. But the myth is is that, well, the family's disconnected, but they truly aren't. No, no, I, I, I agree. Um, if you talk to families, they'll, they'll tell you that throughout the day they're thinking about that loved one, that it's almost impossible for them to go through a day without having some thought or some, some contact. I, the thing I thought was interesting that you just kind of alluded to was, so what's the relationship between the patient and their, their siblings? And so often... Um, what we have seen is that's a huge source of stress for the family. Right. The other siblings are angry at the, the primary patient for sort of perpetrating this on the family uh, or taking their parents away from them. So that's one of the other things for us is we invite siblings. We want the whole family to be here for family week so that they can all begin to have this conversation to, to see how different their perceptions are. Reframing. Yeah, I think that's so important because um, I think people do the best with what they learned, um, Mm -hmm. and that um, we don't have to pathologize at all. Oh no, no, and that's the beauty of that idea that these are highly motivated people. They're highly motivated to really fix this scenario, but. um, um, you know, the old family therapy saying is, if you always do what you always did, you always get what you always got. And that's the biggest issue is until they reframe what the problem actually is, and that is a family disorder, they will continue to put all their emphasis on that loved one and get them to change or get them to be better. That misses the point. Right. Right. Oftentimes when the family, if the family doesn't get better and the identified person does, um, the dynamics within the family are such that they need the person to be sick in order to continue to function, too. Mm-hmm. And we'll be right back to talk a little bit about 
more about that after this commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and today we're talking about the secondary traumatic stress that's experienced by family members of folks who have um, addiction and and or uh, mental health disorders. And our guest today is Dr. Michael Barnes, who is the Clinical Program Manager for the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation at the University of Colorado Hospital. And um, you know, I, I think that um, if there are family members out there listening, please please know that um, there are a number of programs like CDAR that are there to help you, and and please know that you're um, you're a big part of the solution, and that um, whatever you can do to help yourself is going to help your family. And um, Dr. Burns, what are um, some any tools that that folks can use, or um, any suggestions that you have? Mm-hmm. Sure. One of the models that I um really like to use with traumatized families is a model called the Family Empowerment Model, and that was developed by Charles Figley back in the late 80s. Uh, he wrote a book called Helping Traumatized Families. It came out in 89, and uh, there's actually a brand new, uh, not brand new, but volume two 
Figley and Kisher uh, came out a couple years ago. And the first part of that model is uh, building a commitment to the therapeutic objective, which is really getting the family ready to begin to talk about the trauma. If we remember, traumatized families and addiction, addictive families tend to follow by Claudia, or live by Claudia Black's you know, rules of don't talk, don't feel, and don't trust. So to assume that families are going to come in and be comfortable talking about the traumatic events uh, when there's such disagreement and so much anxiety um, is, is unrealistic. So one of the things um, I like to do is I have a set of questions that I use that as I'm doing therapy with the family, I think it's imperative to begin to connect the mind and body um, that is so, so much part of the trauma response. So um, if I see an argument getting ready to happen, I'll stop it. I keep these four questions written on my whiteboard all the time, and I'll tell the family members, okay, let's go to the whiteboard. Let's work through the questions. And the first is, what am I thinking cognitively? And so often, uh, as, the, as the case is, the family members within one or two statements are already thinking about how they need to defend themselves or, or how the other person is wrong or, or that's not how I remember it. And what we found is that if we can get all the family members in a non-anxious way and in a non-confrontational way to begin to put out those thoughts, that they can begin to um, recognize how one another copes with um, the difficulty that they're having when they're um, talking, beginning to talk about the trauma. The second is, what are they feeling emotionally? And so often, they're able to recognize great fear and anxiety. They may even notice that they're dissociating at that point. So we begin to look at those safety issues. And it's really important for them to make the connection between the thoughts that are coming to their mind with the emotions that they're experiencing and begin to realize that maybe the emotion comes first and then the thoughts come second. Or for them, they begin to think about it a certain way and then they begin to feel the third set of questions are really about what are they feeling in their body. And so often family members will talk about their chest tightening or their throat tightening or getting uh, highly, highly anxious or, or um, um, you know, tremulous in some way and to begin to make that connection between the mind, the emotion, and the body and to see that they can really begin to control those. And the last one is what is your impulse to do in this moment? And so often they come in with the idea that we're going to talk about this and are highly motivated, but in a relatively short period of time, their impulse, which is to escape, becomes the primary safety issue for them. And so the, the discussion gets disrupted by one or multiple members in the family's um, impulse to either change the subject or to blow up and, and create distance. But it, I find that the more we can work on these four areas, what people are thinking, what they're feeling emotionally, their somatic response, and their impulse, that if we can begin to work on those, our sessions become much more calm, that we're able to talk about more and more difficult things, and that that really kind of sets that patient up, that family, when I say patient meaning family, up to begin to do the difficult trauma work that's coming. Um, The last phase of the model, and then The second phase is what we would call uh, framing the problem, where we get everyone in the family to tell their story without interruption, and then reframing, where we have all of this information on the table and begin to have people uh, talk to one another, but I never realized that you felt that way. I never realized that you held that resentment towards me for this or for that, and begin to talk about the the day-to-day struggle with the trauma. And then the last phase uh, is uh, called creating a healing theory. And, and these are really 
in my mind, really healing and important questions that if we can get the family members to begin to talk about and to create a unified view of after all the talking that we've done, this is what we really think did happen. So the first question is what happened, uh, the traumatic event. I used to debrief bank robberies in a job uh, um, many years ago, and that was one of the things that I realized, that when I talked to the person who was actually the one, the point person dealing with the person robbing the bank, when they would tell their story, everyone else in the debriefing would eventually say, well, that's not actually very accurate. And if we look at uh, Vander Kolk's work and realize that a lot of trauma memories actually don't get processed, that individuals have uh, significant gaps in their narrative memory, that if we can begin to get them to be unified on, here's actually what did happen, or to the best of our ability. Uh, Perception tends to be more important for these families than the reality, because they don't necessarily remember the reality. The second question is, why did it happen? And they can begin to look at how they've blamed or begin to look at the reality that, um, that we were powerless. It could have happened to anyone, um, which is really the beginning of that healing process. Uh, the third question, uh, why did uh, we act as we did when this event happened, really gets them to begin to talk about the terror that they felt or the powerlessness that they felt. And this is one of the things I talk to our patients about a lot is that the trauma is all about powerlessness. If they could have stopped it, they would have. And so coming to terms with, um, rather than I should have been uh, brave and done something to stop it, to begin to recognize that powerlessness. The fourth question, um, why have we acted as we have since the event? To really begin to look at how difficult it has been and how painful it has been to watch one member of a family um, suffer. And so often um, I'll hear uh, a a parent say, you know, that I was so anxious and so impacted by the trauma that I needed my children to um, behave in a way that didn't create anxiety for me. So they became much more strict and, and, and more controlling. And for the families to begin to realize that mom wasn't being mean, that she was actually really terrified for our safety. It was a really healing process. And then the last question is, how would we react if something like this were to happen again? And this is that process of hope, the idea that we really could be different. We could support each other different. We could speak different. We could um, break the rules of don't feel, don't talk, and don't trust. So those are two sets of questions that one that I use very much at the beginning of my work with families. The other that I really uh, work uh, use once the family can begin to talk about hard things without interrupting and without arguing. And I find them the first really sets the family up to do the trauma work, and the second actually allows the family to do the trauma work that's, that's um, so needed and is actually the healing uh, aspect of it. So those would be two sets of, uh, or two interventions that I think are um, just really very useful. Any therapist could use those tomorrow and begin a process of change within a family system. How do you... Um, you You've mentioned this a couple times in terms of a family member beginning to disassociate. Can you speak a little bit more about that? So dissociation, so if we look at how the trauma response works, the fight-or-flight response is uh, the activation of the sympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic nervous system is what gets activated whenever we feel threatened. So it's a stress response and then a strong stress response, and and um, it's what stimulates either fighting or changing the scenario or or flighting or getting out of there. 
if the trauma, if the event does not stop, the sympathetic nervous system turns off and the parasympathetic nervous system is activated. And so uh, the parasympathetic uh, nervous system's job is to actually turn systems off. So an individual who's actively dissociating um, um, finds that they're, they're not feeling anything, that there's a reduction in anxiety, that oftentimes there's a depersonalization where they um, begin to realize that I'm watching this happening as if I'm watching a movie, or um, they're so anxious that they don't remember what's happening. One of the things that uh, research is telling us is that as anxiety increases, the prefrontal cortex gets less and less blood flow and actually be- be- begins to go offline so that oftentimes... Uh, people won't actually remember what's happening. So um, dissociation is the disconnection at that point from, of reality. And as a therapist, I generally look for two things. If I have a client who is sitting there with, where everyone else is pretty comfortable, that they're beginning to feel really cold. Dissociation is a process of all the blood leaving the external um, limbs um, that that blood was once needed for fighting or flighting, and now it's being dissociated and the blood's actually moving into the viscera of the body. So oftentimes a real go-to is, is either a 10,000-yard stare where they're sitting there and just sort of staring at you, that they start to get really cold, or if they start to get sleepy, that's one of the other symptoms. Um, so if you're a therapist and you're working with someone who, when things start to get tough, generally starts to yawn or start to get sleepy, that's a really telltale sign that they're beginning to dissociate. Um, and as a therapist, there's certain little tricks that, that I've learned to work with patients. And one would be to get them to get up and uh, walk around the room. Here at Cedar, I'll have a patient get up and run around the building or walk around the building and get the blood flowing again and so that they can get back in the room and be present or do push-ups against the wall or um, you know, just some kind of activity to get the blood flow back into the into the body and back into the brain. So how do families um, continue to work on on this um, after treatment? Well, there's a fine, there's a kind of a decision point that's really important that uh, I think family therapy too early actually takes um, some of the emphasis away from the, the recovery from addiction. So, Early on, I will ask family members to either um, see their own therapist, if it's a family member as the wife or husband or partner of, of an addicted patient, to work with their own um, private therapist on their own kind of family history and trauma and give that patient a, a chance to get a little more solid in their recovery. Um, if the patient has significant trauma, I want them to be able to learn how to manage their own anxiety and to sort of, um, you know, through a process of you know, um, brain plasticity, begin to build uh, resourcing and the ability to be more calm and thoughtful uh, before doing couples therapy or family therapy. But um, often oh. it's really just a matter of getting them into family therapy. Okay, and we'll be right back after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step by step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now your baby is in your arms and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to our final segment of One Hour at a Time. Today we're talking about the secondary traumatic stress experienced by family members of folks that have addictive disorders and mental health disorders or co-occurring disorders. And our guest today is Dr. Michael Barnes, who is a clinical program manager at the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation at the University of Colorado Hospital. Dr. Barnes, how can people... Um, contact you or learn more about your programs at CEDAR? Um, my telephone number is 720-848-2995. That's my office number. Uh, my email address is michael.barnes, B-A-R-N-E-S, at uchealth.org. And our website address is www. Cedar, C-E-D-A-R, Colorado, dot org. And I would be happy to share some of the uh, lectures that I've done around the country and PowerPoints and some of that information if, if people would like to see that. So send me an Thank email you. and I'll get it out to you. Great. Um, I guess it was in our first segment you talked about trauma having uh, an emotional, physical, and a spiritual component to it, which is often how we characterize um, addiction. And I was just wondering, um, I found it kind of fascinating, the spiritual component of trauma. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, as is the case with addiction, um, trauma is really about powerlessness and the unmanageability of one's life. And and any time there is that element, so many of our patients come uh, to Cedar with significant anger at God or 
Um, so often some of their trauma is associated with some aspect of their religion. So they come to our program um, with either uh, religious or spiritual issues or uh, really significant roadblocks. And uh, what we find is, uh, and we assign a, a chaplain uh, to every patient as part of their treatment team. So really, we do a really good assessment uh, of, uh, of our patients from a spiritual perspective and then really begin to look at how best to approach their issues. And, uh, and again, if we look at resilience both in individuals and in families, this issue of, of optimism and maintaining a moral compass and um, having a solid spiritual or religious foundation and being open to the social support from others um, are, are things that are, um, oftentimes our chaplains can work with patients on in ways that our other counselors can't. And uh, so often as they begin to heal their sort of spiritual issues, that it opens the door for them to both embrace the 12-step traditions that we talk about, but also to begin to look at gratitude in their lives and forgiveness in their lives. And so, um, um, yeah, for those individuals whose, you know, trauma was associated with some aspect of the messages from their uh, church from when they were a child or some other kinds of trauma that we find that it's a really healing process for them to begin to investigate it, not from any one religious perspective, but from a, a truly open, eclectic, uh, ecumenical kind of perspective. Um, and uh, our chaplains actually all come from different um, philosophical perspectives so that we can match um, a, a, a chaplain to the basic needs of that patient. Um, yeah, you know, when we talk about the powerlessness of um, these illnesses, the um, I think the ironic thing about that is that the power comes from how we think and, and how we manage our thoughts. And that when you were talking about resilience earlier, you know, when you talk about gratitude and you talk about hope and optimism, those are all things that we can we can work on. I mean, some of us tend to be that way naturally, and some of us have to work a lot harder to be that way. But those are all things, those are all skills and ways of thinking that are easy to do, and it and it's, it's not about medication, it's about changing your thoughts. Uh, absolutely. I was looking, I'm looking at my bookcase. There's a, the, the issue of resilience, I think, is highly tied to spirituality. And um, we're spending a lot more time um, really trying to teach patients what, what does a resilient individual look like. And there's a book by Dennis Charney, and I can't think of the other, the other person's last name is Southwick, and it's just called Resilience. And it was a great book um, that has been written uh, about prisoners of war from Vietnam and um, 9-11 survivors, and they really put together a model of um, what a resilient individual looks like um, and spirituality is a, a very big part of that, and optimism is at the center of it. Um, for any of your listeners, or any of our listeners, if you want a, just a simple text to begin the process, that, that would be the one that I would recommend, and that's the one that we use on a pretty regular basis. Um, and it, inclu- it includes like exercise and you know, coping strategies, uh, you know, cognitive appraisals, but it's a, it's a really well defined uh, model for helping people to do that. And um, our chaplains play a big part in that for us. 
Well, and I think the other thing, um, the other side to these illnesses is that, you know, people often um, will end up in recovery, uh, but they may also end up in jail or in a psychiatric mm-hmm. hospital for a long time where they may end up dead. And I think that all of those things, um, families have to have a way to cope with all of that. And it's just really important because we have no control over it. These are illnesses that nobody can control. And they're very powerful illnesses. And it's not about willpower on the individual. It's really about how their brain is functioning. And, um, and so I think the more families can do to um, deal with their own trauma and what's going on for them with these chronic illnesses, uh, the better the next generation will be. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that when I finish my lecture that I do for the family program is tell them that, uh, you know, there are no magic bullets, like at this point, that if, if there was, we would have shot, shot your loved one with it when they came in, and that it's really about they need to come to terms with their addiction and the responsibility for changing their lives, and the family members need to also look at the fact that living with someone with an active mental illness or addiction has had a significant impact on them, and that they can begin to look at their own trauma histories and look at their own, uh, the wounds received, and that uh, that's really the beginning of their own healing process. That um, um, you know, if they really want to um, shock their loved one, tell them that they're going to an Al-Anon meeting or to a, to a support group meeting of some kind, that they intend to begin the family healing whether the patient does or not. That's, that's the real, in my mind, the beginning of family healing. When we quit expecting the patient to be the one to make all the change and for the family members to begin that change process. Exactly. Because oftentimes the family member will follow the family right into recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those people who are listening, um, there's certainly Al-Anon and there's also NAMI has family-to-family um, peer support groups as well. So there are places out there where you can get support for what you're going through. Mm-hmm. I always tell families that if you're sitting in this meeting saying that none of this applies to you, that your loved one is probably sitting over in their cottage, in their group, thinking none of this applies to me, that it's a, truly a systemic process and that um, sometimes the person that needs to change is the one that we, we didn't expect at the beginning. That my students, I used to say to them that people change when the they realize that the problem that they've been trying to solve isn't necessarily the problem that they have. And when they can reframe it, that it's as much my problem as it is my loved one's problem, maybe I better start taking care of myself. That it really sends that reverberation through the family system that something significant has started to change. And I guess that's a great way to end our message today is that when the family changes, the system changes and people get better. So thank you so much, Dr. Barnes, for spending this hour with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Have a great week, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.